Welcome to today's podcast episode. As you may know, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, I don't normally upload over a weekend, but in light of everything that has happened this week, I just wanted to, I guess, pop these two episodes from the past together, zip them up into a file for you and share it again in case you didn't listen when I first shared these episodes or perhaps you just want to refresh your memory and keep Marion Barter at the front of your mind and of course Sally as well. I find it hard to imagine that there is really anyone listening who is not familiar with the disappearance of Marion Barter. I know so many of you jumped on over and listened to The Lady Vanishes after I had Sally on the podcast, my mum included. After my mum listened to that episode with Sally, she was messaging me and just saying, I cannot, like, I cannot wrap my head around this. And she then went on to listen to all of the episodes of The Lady Vanishes. And it's just been something that we have spoken about so much because, you know, obviously millions, like millions of people around the world have been in shock over this case and have been moved and felt compelled to really keep Marion and Sally in their minds and in their hearts, and even to go a step further. There have been online super sleuths who have truly made a massive difference in this case surrounding the disappearance of Marion Barter. You'll hear in my conversation with Sally, we spoke about the upcoming inquest, and it has now passed. So the inquest findings were delivered on Thursday, um, you know, yesterday, I'm recording this on Friday and this episode will be up for you over the weekend. And I certainly won't, will not speak on behalf of Sally. I've been keeping a close eye on her social media account because I wanted to wait until Sally shared a particular resource to include in the introduction. And if anything is shared between now and then, I'll certainly update the show notes and include that. I encourage you to click follow on Sally's Instagram account for updates. Um, I will have that in the show note for you. There's also a website that you can visit and there are multiple news articles. I know Laura Richards, who has also been on the podcast, um, also known as the Crime Analyst, will do a breakdown of the coroner's findings. And I certainly don't pretend to uh, be anywhere in the realm of Laura Richards in terms of breaking down the coroner's findings, but I wanted to just share with you that it has been found. It has been, I guess, announced yesterday. The coroner did make a finding about about Marion Barter, and she found that she did pass away. She is no longer with us. She died sometime after she was last seen on the 15th of October, 1997, which is just so broad and it's just so sad that Sally can't get more answers right now. It's been suggested from the coroner 
who is Teresa O'Sullivan, that this case be handed over or stay with the Homicide Department for New, in New South Wales and that it is an ongoing investigation. I believe Teresa O'Sullivan also criticised the way the case has been handled, which is no surprise. Have a listen to my conversation with Sally. I shared this a couple of months ago and I actually separated it at first into part one and part two because it was a big conversation and I wanted people to be able to really digest it. But for um, the purpose of keeping Marion front and center in your mind and your heart and Sally as well, I wanted to zip our conversation together and share it with you in full. Have a listen over the weekend. You know, I know that longer episodes can sometimes seem a bit daunting because it's like, how will I ever get through this? But you'll chip away at it. You know, if you're anything like me, you might have a listen whilst you're pottering around the house and doing all of the weekend stuff, the spring cleaning, summer cleaning. If you um, are out and about on a walk, if you're getting some time to yourself, have a listen. There are so many great episodes as well with Laura Richards deconstructing The Lady Vanishes and going on a really deep dive. So I will link those in the show notes for you as well. I appreciate you tuning in to this bonus episode. And yeah, my thoughts are just with Sally and her family. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Sally, as I was saying to you before we hit record, one, I am just so in awe of your dedication and your commitment and also, I guess, your determination to uncover what has happened to your mum. And the second thing I was saying to you before I pressed record was that as a listener, every time I hear something about your mum's case, I am enraged because there is so much dismissal, dismissal of you in the early days when you were trying to locate your mum and also dismissal of your mum's validity as a person. Like it seems as though there was such a misogynistic lens put on things and it was like, no, no, your mum's been married before so she is capable of running away and marrying someone else and it's that dismissal that just makes me so mad so I can only imagine how mad it makes you uh, it's it's very frustrating and I found it very upsetting especially at the beginning when we sort of went public with it and it was always repeated it was like it was on repeat you know oh she's been married three times and she's capable of this behavior and she's 51 and you know making assumptions about a person that they've never met before. And that was very difficult for me to process and manage because I kept hearing that on repeat. Um, and, you know, I knew I knew my mum and I knew her situations, you know, um, 
it wasn't an easy ride for her and I know why she uh, had breakdowns in her marriages. Those people do not. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like I was pushed to the side multiple times from multiple different people and that includes my mum's family, the police, um, you know, no one really wanted to talk about it with me. So I found myself sort of just shutting out and just winding myself back into a bit of a hole and going, okay, well, I'm not really sure how to speak about this and not be judged or speak about it and be heard. And, um, you know, that's when I was sort of found myself in a bit of a position, I guess, where my grandmother, my mum's mum, was elderly in her 90s and still living in her home and that no one ever spoke to me about it. So I would go and visit her on the monthly, take my kids up there. Um, she, she became a big part of my kids' world as well um, and I grew up there. So, you know, when I go back to Moffat Beach at Caloundra, it just brings back all the memories of me growing up with my mum and my brother and us going on holidays there every single school holidays because, remember, mum was a teacher so we had lots of school holidays and we'd jump in the car and drive to Caloundra every chance mum got. And so, you know, to hear people making those sorts of claims and comments about who my mum was as a person, and it, essentially that reflected on me as a human being as well because they were saying, well, you're not worthy and she didn't love you and she didn't want you. And those words are so cutting and so dangerous to say to somebody, um, you know, and my brother's not here. He took his own life. Um, after, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why Owen took his own life. I can't answer that question, but um, I know that it was only a few years after mum went missing and I do know that he told my dad that um, when he met with mum at our engagement party, he said to her, for the first time in my adult life, I feel like I've got my mum again. And then for her to disappear and then for us to be told that she never wanted to see us again, I can, I, I feel that that, knowing my brother very well, I feel that was the the um you know the icing on the cake for him the rejection that you both would have felt would have been just so extreme and it almost seems like there was a degree of gaslighting happening as well for both of you too in terms of people saying to you well no she has left on her own accord and not just you know family which of course would be really really hard but also authorities, when you got in touch, when you were trying to uncover where your mum was, you were receiving information that, no, your mum's actually returned and she doesn't want anything to do with you. Uh, and I was a young 24-year-old as well, I would say. You know, I look at my 22-year-old daughter and she's way more mature than I was at 24. So I really just took on what I was being told. I, I literally just thought, okay, I've, I've done the right thing. I've gone to the police. I've said there's a problem here. My mum is supposed to be overseas and she's got money coming out of her bank account here in Byron Bay. I'm concerned for her welfare. There's something wrong here. And, you know, it was dismissed. And of course, at 24 years old, I think regardless of how mature you are at 24, but particularly if you do consider yourself to be a bit young at that time, at 24, you would go to the police you would say, look, this is all the information I have and you pass it over to them because you're 24. And to know that, you know, she didn't even end up being on the missing persons registry, it wasn't investigated at all to the extent that it should have been, is just so disheartening. 
Yeah, it was it's it was it's been a ride of hit after hit, I would say. So, you know, I only found out that she wasn't on the missing persons register because someone who was following my page went on to have a look and said, hang on a minute, your mum's not on there. And I went, what? What are you talking about? And so it's, you know, every time I've had an opportunity to move forward and learn something or project the story to try and get some answers, the door's been firmly shut in my face and, um, you know, it's just that's just been the ride that I've been on. And there's no manual on how to do this. So there's no checklist for you to follow and go, oh, I need to confirm she's on that missing persons list because you've done everything that we're told to do as citizens. You've got a problem, you report it to the police, you then trust in the system. So that's really challenging, I'm sure. With people commenting to you that your mum had been married multiple times, the undertone there is that she has the ability to be reckless. Whereas if people actually pause to consider it, it's the ability to be led. It's the ability to love quickly. It's a vulnerability. And to me, that should alert everyone. This is potentially a vulnerable woman who is being taken advantage of. 100%. And I think part of this journey for me and having to dig deep into my mum's personal life and what she's done and how she's done it and reflect on certain things that I know and experienced myself, but maybe as a 10-year-old, I've had to go back to those times and pull myself through those again and go, actually, there's a coercion there or there is a gaslight there that I never experienced because we didn't have those words. Even when mum went missing, you know, coercive control wasn't a thing. Um, So there wasn't a label for it. Um, It was just that a woman who's capable of this behaviour because she's been married three times and divorced three times. And, um, you know, I've had to – I've used the example of my stepfather, Ray Barter, and, you know, Owen and I had been down at our dad's. We'd been there for the weekend and she came and picked us up from the train station um, and we got in the car and it was probably a three-minute drive from the train station to our house. And she picked us up and she said to us, I've got something to tell you both. Um, There's a man coming to live with us. And so I turned to Owen in the back seat and went, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Anyway, she said, look, I don't remember much more of that conversation, word perfect, but along the lines of his name's Ray, he's there in the kitchen when you get home. So we walked in the house and I remember Owen and I beelined it out for the trampoline and jumping on the trampoline you could see into the kitchen window and he was just standing there cooking. And I remember very clearly he turned up with an Adidas bag full of clothes. That was it. And... I think, you know, from my memory, mum told me they'd been on a few dates and he needed somewhere to go because he was leaving his wife and his three boys and mum welcomed him in. And I stop and think about that in today as a 50-year-old woman with three children. I just don't know if I would have done that. I don't know if I would do that. And I, I see that as a an openness in my mum for someone who really loved being in love and loved the opportunity to go to the theatre with somebody or go to the ballet. And, you know, I've listened to mum's sisters talk about how mum tried to change Ray. Um, and I think that's an unfair um, – I think that's an unfair 
vision of what she was trying to do because she was trying to welcome him into her world. It's the same as he welcomed her into his world, which was showing dogs. I mean, mum and I were dragged from pillar to post going to dog shows every weekend as a teenager. I'm telling you, that was not that fun. Um, you know, I could have thought of a million things I'd rather be doing, but we did it every weekend and she brought her school stuff along and sat there and welcomed herself into his world, you know, so it was very much both a both way street, two way street, um, in that scenario, but just demonstrated to me how easy she could openly welcome someone into her world and very quickly. Yes. And at a base level, wanting to be in love and wanting to be loved. And I mean, I know nowadays, 2023, there's still a lot of stigma for single mums, let alone back then. There would have been so much stigma surrounding your mum being a single mum. So it makes sense to me that whilst, you know, on paper you go, of course, if someone was thinking more rationally and, you know, you probably wouldn't move someone into your house that fast. You just wouldn't do it now. But it makes sense when you think about the lens of so much stigma surrounding single moms. And she just would have wanted to give you guys that family unit. And it would have just been like, oh, here it is. Here's my happy ending. And just because she was vulnerable and open doesn't mean she was unstable. You know, unfortunately, sometimes someone who has a really open heart and a lot of empathy does get taken advantage of and does have more of a willingness to believe. Mm. Which is sad, really, when you think about it, because at the end of the day, that sort of turns on her, doesn't it? You know, her parents or her dad, I remember he used to call her Marrying Marion. And I think that's become an important part of this investigation because in my head, I think to myself, okay, well, I'm the same age my mum was. So next year I turned 51. My mum went missing when she was 51. So that kind of spins my head a little bit. But as the same age and if I was in the same position and I had people saying that to me and I'd met somebody and it was my fourth potential marriage. I mean, she's ticked that she's married on her incoming passenger card. So let's assume she got married or she thinks she got married. Um, maybe she didn't want to tell anybody because she didn't want the backlash. Fear of judgment. From, yeah, 100%. And she wanted to make people proud of her and, you know, I think that she that was seen as a, a weakness in my mum that she could fall so easily and be somebody who could fall in love and you know it's interesting listening to her sisters talk in the, in the inquest because they're talking about how their parents always said you only get married once and you have all these stigmas that you have to abide by and you know that wasn't my mum's character and I think it's unfair to to judge people or make judgment of people um, whether that be in 1997 or in you know 2000 and uh, 23, it, no one should make judgment on people and um, that's that's been a sad part of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real stigma and a real bias towards people um, that, that have been married multiple times and it's absolutely ridiculous in any context, but especially in the context of a missing person, to use it as some sort of character assassination is insane. Well, it's, yeah, definitely shouldn't be the, the ruse as to why she's missing. During the time sort of in the early days after you reported your mum missing and you were trying to locate her, you did receive information about the fact that she had been sighted and she didn't want to actually be, be found or be known. 
Upon reflection, I mean, from what I understand listening to the podcast episodes, there's no record of a police officer saying that to you. Is that right? Yeah. Correct. Is Is there any train of thought surrounding the fact that maybe that was someone who was involved in your mum's disappearance getting in touch with you or at that time were you certain it was a police officer and it's just been something that's not been handled well on their end? Yeah, it's a good question actually and something I've wanted to put to bed for a long time because people have quite often said, oh, well, there's there's no report on that actually happening and um, we did speak to on the Lady Vanishes podcast which is the podcast about my mum we called Graham Childs who was the police officer who took my report at Byron Bay Police and I asked him that question and I said would it have been the case that if you had called me to tell me that you'd found me that you would have recorded that and he said look I'd like to think so but it seems I may have dropped the ball on that and I want to tell everybody who's listening to my story that It was definitely a male who rang me, 100%. And it was definitely shortly after I went to Byron Bay. And in my opinion, it was the same person I'd spoken to at police station when I went in and reported her missing. His voice sounded the same. He didn't have an accent. It was the same person in my head. Um, And so that's why I've always gone down that pathway of, the police called me and told me that. Now, there's records that have come out since through the inquest inquiry and through the homicide investigation, finding that Queensland police had found some notebooks from some police officers that were looking into the case. And they haven't actually mentioned me in any of the documentation. They've just got my phone number there and said a long call. So, therefore, the assumption is that they spoke to me and they were calling me the informant. And I have no recollection of that happening. So um, I also want to say that at that time, the stress and the anxiety that I must have been feeling, like I know I don't really think about that so much, but, you know, in talking to Joni who has been helping me hugely over the last four years, you know, she comes from that background and she says to me, the stress that you must have been under is just outrageously you know, not considered here because I'm being told that my mum's missing. I get told she doesn't want to ever see me again or talk to me again. She doesn't contact Owen for his um, for his birthday. I'm getting told by one of mum's sisters. I'm getting yelled at essentially saying, leave it alone. Why would you go and list her as a missing person? And so I've just, I'm starting to pedal backwards going, oh, okay, maybe, yep, maybe I'm wrong. Like I'll just sit here. And so that's why I kind of pushed it onto my grandfather and said, well, you're my senior authority here. You you lead the way and I'll help you. But he was dying of cancer. And, you know, so he had his own issues that he was trying to grapple with and therefore it became very difficult. And then, you know, literally within a few years of mum missing, I lose my brother and I lose my grandfather. So I lost two major people in my world. I got married. I had my first baby. We're building a house. All massive stresses that any person under any normal circumstance would find challenging at some point or one or another. And I was dealing with a lot. And I didn't really have a support system except my husband, Chris. That's it. And my friends. It's a massive amount for one person or two people, you and Chris, to carry. Like It's huge. Yeah, I'm lucky he 
he is very calm. Well, he's he's become less calm, <laughs> I would say, through all of this and having to sit through inquests and whatnot. Um, but he is a very calm human and he's a he's a good guy. Like he he's not reactive, so he balances me out very well. So if I'm being reactive to something or upset about something, he he doesn't come in with fire and spray me. He just chills me out and we move forward. And that's been the success of our marriage, I think, throughout um, the 25 years. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last month. So, you know, I'm very lucky that we have each other because I also support him in a lot of ways as well. You know, he's lost his mum as well. And, um, you know, so we, we live a life where both our dads – don't live near us and um, they don't really have a lot to do in our family. Like they're not involved in the kids or anything like that. Whereas I know for a fact my mum would have been and Chris's mum definitely was, you know, and um, so it was a real it was a real shame when she passed away because um, and then when my grandmother passed away as well, my kids literally lost every female, um, you know, what do you call Matriarch. it? They, yeah, that they looked up to or they could talk to. Um, you know, it, it's. I feel sad for my kids. They don't have, you know, people in their world as family who they could fall on if they needed help and they wanted to walk outside of our five, you know, our group, our family network. Um, they don't really have that and that, that does break my heart as well. But we, Chris and I, do our best to manage it. I can imagine that has been a huge driving force as well for you, Sally, just the fact that you want to be able to give your kids those answers and uncover exactly what has happened. Well, I think that was kind of in my headspace that was the main thing. I had listened to a TV or watched a TV show a very, very long time ago and it was about missing persons and um, there was two sisters and they were looking – for their mum or their sister and I couldn't I can't remember but I remember the little boy in the show and he was crying and he he was very upset about this missing person and it was someone he's never met before and it really resonated with me because I thought I don't want my children to be sad and hurt and you know carry this burden for their lives because we don't know where she is. So I just felt at that time it was my time to push. I waited for my grandmother to pass away so she wasn't worried and stressed because I knew it would have worried her and upset her if I had gone public with it. But that was the only way I was going to find her or get some answers as to what's happened to her potentially. So, um, you know, that was really my driving force behind it. I didn't want to leave, you know, my children if I'm if I pass away and she's still not found I don't want them to feel there's a burden there that they have to carry on and keep going I wanted to do this I wanted to get it to an inquest so that it can be investigated properly and thoroughly so that I can put it to rest and therefore my children can too have a memorial site for my mum somewhere the kids can go and I can go to just sit and reflect and have some peace um, and I'm still fighting for that. I keep getting knocked back every time I turn around and suggest that we, we put a plaque here or plant a tree there. I'm just getting knocked back everywhere I turn. So that's also challenging for me right this second. Um, and, you know, I'm doing it on my own. I, it's not like 
I don't, ha- I can't get anybody else to do that job. That's my job. And on top of everything else I'm juggling, it's hard. Where does the pushback and the no come from? Is that something that comes from the family or is that something more to do with the fact that it's still a criminal case? It's, I don't speak to the family. They, well, they don't speak to me. I haven't spoken to any of them for a very long time. So it's just coming from the people I'm I'm putting it forward to. And for what reason or another, they're, they're not answering me or they just give me a flat out, no, sorry, we can't do that. And I don't know if it's because it's such a high profile case and they don't want the controversy. Um, you know, I even contacted TSS, which is the Southport school where mum was teaching. And, you know, a listener actually suggested that maybe it would be a nice idea to have a an award that is in mum's name. So I sort of came up with the idea that maybe it could be a literary a literacy award, you know, someone who's doing well in literature, uh, because that would be right up mum's alley. And I proposed that to the school and I was happy to buy the trophy and whatever else. And they were like, oh, we don't really do things like that. So let me get back to you. Haven't heard hide nor hair. And I, I was like, wow, like, I'm just trying to do something nice just for my mum, just to sit there and go, she was a person, she was a good person and something bad has happened to her and I just would like some recognition of that. Recognition and validation and your mum was a really valued member of that school as well from all accounts. Yeah, and she was the best teacher in Queensland just before she she was awarded. This is not opinion. She was awarded. Correct. Just... The fact that you have been carrying this burden for the last 26 years, of course, would bring an enormous amount of stress on your whole system. How have you managed to keep going forward? Because with every single podcast episode that the listener hears, there is a new twist. There is something that is just, you know, you just could not have imagined unfolding. How do you actually, I guess, cope with everything that's just been sent your way? That's a very good question. (laughs) I don't know exactly how to answer that, but I can tell you what I do do and whether that's, you know, I haven't really sat down and said, what do I do that makes me cope with this? But I can tell you that um, the followers and the listeners of the podcasts and Uh, And that goes for your podcast too because every podcast I do, we gain new followers and new listeners and they come on board and they reach out to me and I I absolutely love it. I have tendonitis in my thumb from being on my phone probably 10 hours a day answering everybody's questions and answers and saying thank you and people sending me photos they think it was my mum. And so there is a lot of stress that comes with that as well. But I kind of just roll with that. I don't try and take it on at the next level, if you know what I mean. I kind of keep myself balanced um, as best I can. And um, by doing that, I go to the gym a lot. And, you know, I mix that up a fair bit. I have a boxing and I really love punching the bag because that gives me a lot of energy to anything that's upset me or, you know, hurt me that day. I find that that's quite a release. And then I do Pilates and then I do yoga and um, then I do things like Metcon and, um, you know, an abs buns gun class with my girlfriend and I have coffee with her every Friday. And I just, I like having that structure because it actually gives me something to look forward to. I feel like my gym, I love my gym. Um, and 
it gives me that's my mental that's my mental health kick you know I feel like it's my time especially on a Tuesday I'll go and do my Pilates class and then I stay and do restorative yoga after that and that's two hours and it's just myself and I just really feel like that's an important I've only just started doing that in the last six months but it really helps me clear my head keep going keep moving uh, and keeping motivated and the other thing I would say is um, you know I've got a great community in the the podcast but my family are also amazing humans and my kids are excellent they're there we have a relationship I think that's very open and very much on the table we have a excellent dinner table conversations um, sometimes I just get to the point where I'm laughing and they call it cry laughing because I start crying as I'm laughing and then they start laughing at me and it just gets worse so it's not really it's kind of funny but um, the girls and their partners are there as well and so we're very much a family of welcoming people in and building on that platform as well so you know um, I've got great friends and um, yeah great kids too as along with Chris and then one of the things I find myself doing is if there's a big moment of something coming up I actually give myself tasks to do and um, one of those was my daughter was turning 21 last year and we weren't planning on having anything big we were just going to have a party for her and something small and it was right in that realm of me at the end of the inquest there's a lot of stress there's a lot of angst I'm getting shut doors still no one's talking to me and I just threw myself into this party and went well let's just have a party so you know we had croupiers there and we had um um champagne flowing and we made Ella and I made the cake together and I just dive straight in to doing these things and it gives me something to focus on to take myself out of the pressure cooker of what I'm in and it just puts probably puts me in another pressure cooker but a pressure cooker that I like and you know something that I really love doing so um, you know or I plan a holiday and I'm sitting there and I just dive straight in and it just gives me this release of just something different to do I, I I love reading but I can't sit and read because I'm just go 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 all the time I just can't relax enough to sit down and do that but I really relax when I'm planning and I'm organizing and I get told I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to these things but that's just me as a person someone who actually just loves to plan and organize and you know it just makes my heart sing. I love it so much. Um, and I'm lucky because the kids actually just let me let me do it. <laughs> they don't ever push me back. But, um, you know, I think that is another part of my coping mechanism is, um, you know, focusing on positive things rather than focusing on the negative. Because I think if you focus on the negative all the time, that's bad energy and that is not good for your psyche and you need to, you know, not be putting yourself in that position. Um, so focus on the positive and do something that's fun and enjoyable that you like doing. Um, and that's the same with the gym. You know, going to the gym is is good for my good for my head uh, and good for my mental headspace. So, you know, if I can help say that to share to someone if they're in, finding themselves in a position where they just feel like it's a constant roundabout and that that swing that you just, you can't get off. Um, you know, I remember those. Do you remember those twirly things at the park that you jump yeah. on? 
you push and then you jump off them really while well, they were still going. Kind of reminds me of that a little bit. You know, if someone keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and the faster and faster it goes, it's harder to jump off. But if you actually just slow yourself down a little bit, pull yourself away and go, what's something that's good for my head? What's something that's good for my energies? Um, and keep my head level. Um, and that's the, they're the things that I do to, to help with that. Yeah. And it makes so much sense because I can imagine there's always something to do when it comes to your mum's case. And there would always be so much adrenaline and energy and stress, like that stress response, that fight, flight, freeze coursing through your system. So if you actually force yourself to focus on something else, you can channel some of those emotions into that in a more positive way. You can take action. You can control something. You can create an outcome that you want. So I think that makes so much sense. And it's such a wonderful thing to share with our listeners, because whilst I doubt any of our listeners are in the same situation you're in, Sally. I'm sure a lot of them are finding themselves in challenging situations where they could easily get stuck in that negative thought pattern, stuck on that negative merry-go-round. So to actually go, you know what, I am purposefully going to redirect my attention and my focus into this way of channeling it. I think that's really valuable advice. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully no one has to go through what I go through. That's that's the hope I have for and foremost. But I know reality is that people do and there are people out there like me still trying to find their missing person. And, you know, um, if I can give them some advice too and help, you know, always happy to chat. Finally, I'd like to say that, you know, I'd like to give some recognition to Joni Kondos who has been helping me on the podcast because, as I said to you before, she has a um, – a background in um, social work, uh, is it? Yeah, she's like it's in social work and in, you know, a coercive controlling kind of role and environment that she's experienced and explored and, you know, she said herself coercive control wasn't a word that they used but it was that tone mm-hmm. and that conversation that they were having and um, she's been a massive support person for me. We talk every single day. Um, we talk multiple times a day sometimes and, you know, just having someone who understands and knows the story to the, to the T and then being able to actually communicate with her, how I'm feeling, things that have happened, being open with her, I trust her. Um, and that's been really, really essential for me as well, just to have that person who's outside of my family, um, being able to talk to them and, and that person is Joni. So she's been awesome. Did you connect with Joni through the Facebook group? So she was listening to The Lady Vanishes. That's how we met. And she uh, heard about the name change with mum and being Ramakel, and that was a flag for her. She was like, that's a really unusual name. So she ran it through some um, online portals that she had been doing because she herself had had a missing person in her husband's family. So they had been working on that, trying to find his great-grandmother. And in doing so, she had learned some skills in um, doing these searches. So she just ran Ramakel through her her, um, computer and found an ad that was placed. And turns out Rick Blum admits to writing that ad in the paper. So the story really took a very different swing. Um, I think we're at about, I don't know, we were probably up to the the third 
podcast that had been aired or fourth podcast that had been aired, but we'd done seven, I think. And realistically, I didn't know where we were going to go from there because we really hadn't found much. And we were just, you know, going off and searching leads that someone had said she was in this cult out the back of Whoop Whoop and um, sort of going and exploring these avenues because we really literally, I kept saying, we're leaving no stone unturned and I'm happy to do whatever I have to do to try and find the answers so that my kids don't have to. That kept coming back into my my space. So, um, so yeah, so the ad in the paper really threw everything on its head. And then it sort of, we went, that's where we went to Luxembourg and did all these crazy things, things I've never thought I'd ever do in my life. But um, it has been definitely a roller coaster of emotions and stress and um, sleepless nights. So, but here we are here now. So, and I finally ticked the box of going to an inquest, which is the whole purpose I was sort of trying to get to was to do that. So, happy to say we're, we're at the end of that now. There have been a few kind of super sleuths that have really taken an interest in your mum's disappearance and have really, really like taken action to help the case and move it forward. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I, I created a group um, very early on and like I can never answer the question as to why I decided that that was a good idea. It was just these people were showing me support in different ways. So one of them was a, you know, a support in, are you okay? How are you going today, Sal? And the other one was, you know, I can help you with the Facebook, you know, I can help you answer questions. And at that point I was like, that's amazing because I was answering probably, you know, a thousand plus messages a day trying to just, and in my head, I kept thinking these people are giving me their time and they're listening to my story. I want to show them that I'm grateful that they're doing that and that their support gives me a fire in my belly to keep going and go, right, I've got people behind me now. I can keep moving forward with this and I am doing the right thing. And there's a validation in that as well, I think, because being told I was doing the wrong thing and leave it alone and don't touch it and leave it, you know, she's not missing or your mum doesn't want to ever see you ever again, they're hard things to grapple with. But when you've got people on you, on your team as a way uh, of speaking, it keeps you going. It keeps you, you know, I guess it's like people playing football at a stadium and the more the, the crowd cheers for them, the better they perform, right? It's it's giving you an undercurrent of encouragement and uh, care and concern, which I really needed and I'm very grateful for from um, the Lady Vanishes community and those following mum's case. It's unbelievable what the podcast has been able to achieve. I can imagine in those early days of considering even starting a podcast, you just would have had no idea that it could have unfolded like this. Not at all. Like the the occasional person that would sit down and talk to me about mum, they were like, oh my God, you've got to write a book. This is insane. This is crazy. And that was before we found what we have found. Um and I just used to just plot along with it and think, well, I'm just going to keep going when I can, uh, you know, in between building houses, being pregnant, having children, you know, um, raising them and wanting to actually be a good mum. You know, I didn't want to be that person sitting in the corner, which I could have very easily done, rocking back and forth, not coping in life. And that is not who I am as a person. I'm, I'm a very driven person. People sometimes, you know, see that as a negative and call me, you know, I don't know, I've been called things like um, 
what's the word? Um, Almost too brash or too determined or. Yeah, and it, it's seen as a negative, you know, like I've had people um, sort of say it to me in a tone that it's not seen as a positive. And it's not that I mean to come across like that. I just have been built and um, today, in today's world, I feel like that's who I am as a person. Now I have to keep pushing forward and I have to keep driving. And I try and just separate the feelings and put that to one side and go, yes, my mum is missing. And that's sad for me too because I actually don't get to um, grieve for my mum. You know, I don't. I feel like I don't do that enough because today I'm telling the story and I'm here to tell the story to get the answers. And the more we talk about it, the more we find, you know, and it's always about dredging myself back down into rabbit holes and going, okay, what am I going to do today? And what a journey am I going to look at today? And, you know, writing up timelines so we don't forget things and thinking about things I should have done better when I was 24 and, you know, and trying to learn from those Um, mistakes and errors that I made so that I can help other people too, you know. So there's lots of people who have missing persons um, in their world and it's a very hard thing to manage. Uh, So if I can help other people from my not so much mistakes because I didn't know what I was doing, so there wasn't a right or a wrong at that time, but I have learned how to manage and cope and do things differently. And if I can help other people move forward with that information too, well, that's that's. Uh, you know, the flip side of what we actually do, something good that comes out of them. And 26 years ago, Sally, there weren't the resources available to you that are available to you now. And I think it's such a human thing to go, oh, I should have done this or I could have done that. But you literally did what we are all told to do in that situation. And despite it all, you have been so determined and so resilient to keep moving forward. And I can imagine that because there are so many tasks that are always making a bid for your attention, it must be incredibly hard to grieve your mum and with grief, often we are looking for that closure. We're looking for that end that we can tie up before we really sink into it. Whereas I can imagine for you, you're in that ambiguous loss, in that ambiguous grief where you're grieving, you know, the conversations that you wish you could have with her on a daily basis. You're grieving the role that she would have played in your life and your children's life. But yet you have so many other things that need your attention before you can get to that place. Yeah, that's true. Now that we look back on things and we do have more of a vocabulary surrounding coercive control and domestic violence and also an understanding of femicide, only with the ability to look back through that lens, were there things in the lead up to your mum going missing that you would consider to be red flags that, of course, you never would have seen as red flags back then because- I know that a lot of the behaviours that were happening also made sense. It made sense that she wanted to sell her house. It made sense that she wanted to change and leave that school. But with the lens of understanding that your mum is still missing, what is it that you, I guess, would perhaps encourage our listeners to consider as red flags, maybe if they're noticing these things in their own parents? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, that's a very tough thing to talk about because um, I always, and I've always said that as a 24-year-old, it wasn't really my right to quiz my mum or talk to her or, or ask her about her behaviour. Or And I was that child that was always brought up that, you know, children are never are seen but not heard. And um, I kind of in my head was like, I can't really sit here and quiz her on these things. And I did, I did quiz her. I asked her, like when I saw the guy in the car, I said, who was the guy in the car? And she just said, oh, he's just a friend I met at the art centre. And, you know, I I probably should have pushed. I should have pushed harder. And I should have asked, why did you why did you kick Chris out so quickly? Like, what was that about? And ask the question. I did spend a lot of time with my mum. I would go over there and sit with her and have, you know, dinner with her. And there was one night where she just collapsed on the couch and looked completely exhausted and sort of fell asleep while I was sitting next to her. And she'd been crying and she was upset and was telling me that she wasn't happy at TSS and that things were happening there. And I just tried to be that person to support her and and give her someone to talk to without questioning her. And I think it's important that now that I know what I know and now that I've seen what I've seen, I probably would have pushed harder. I would have said, you need to tell me if something's happening, because that's who I am today. I am that person today. And I guide my children with that sort of lingo as well, you know, um, and make sure that people do feel free that they can talk and that they have an open space to talk rather than um, feeling that they could be judged or what have you. Um, There were a couple of instances with mum that are the standout for me. So the McDonald's guy in the car obviously is probably the number one thing because there was a man sitting next to her and I didn't find out who he was. And the second would be there was an instance where she was living with Leslie at this time, her friend. So she had moved in with Leslie after she'd sold her house really quickly. So she sold the house within three weeks and she wasn't quite ready to go on this trip yet at that time. So she moved in with Leslie. There's been conversation about why didn't she live with me, uh, which she was welcome to, but we lived quite away from TSS, whereas Leslie was five minutes from TSS. So in my head, it made sense that she would stay at Leslie's and Leslie had offered um, and they were good friends. So she stayed with Leslie and then one night she had arranged to come and stay at our house and um, I want to take everybody back to a time when there's no mobile phones, there's no Facebook, there's no text, there's no email, right? So we're in a world of very, very – very hard communication, right, compared to what we have today. Communication is open slather. Um, So we did not have that. And the problem that we had with that was we were reliant on answering machines. So most people, I don't think my kids would know what an answering machine is. They probably do because of my story. But in, in terms of just normality for them, you'd have an answering machine sitting there. You'd come in. If someone rung and you weren't home, they'd leave a message and the light would flash and you'd press the button and it would replay the message for you and that's how you could communicate. Anyway, mum had made arrangements to come and stay with Chris and I this night and then she, when I got home, 
there was an answering machine um, message on the on the answering machine, and she said, "Look, I've decided I'm actually going to stay with Leslie uh, tonight, so I'm not coming." And I was like, um, "Yes, that's fine, no problem." Obviously, in my own head, and. Um, Mum was staying at Leslie's and that was fine, no problem. And then I was doing an assignment and I just needed some help with um, writing something. And so I rang Leslie and I said, hi, Les, can I speak to mum? And she said, oh, she's staying at your house tonight. I said, oh, no, she's left a message saying she's not coming and she's at yours. And she goes, oh, well, she's not here. And I went, hmm, okay. So then the next day, I speak to her and I said, so where were you? If you weren't at Leslie's, I rang Leslie's and you weren't there. And at that point, she got very cross with me and she told me to mind my own business. She told me that she'd locked her keys in the car was the story she told us um, and that she was at the car park at Southport Park and she was waiting for RACQ and that she got home. I can't remember the rest of the story. She must have gone back to Leslie's and told her that she was Leslie was asleep or something like that. But I can't I won't say that to be definitive because I don't remember that bit. But I remember her telling me that she'd said she locked her keys in the car and she was waiting for RACQ to come and help her get back in the car. And but she was upset with me that I had I guess I'd exposed something that she didn't want exposed. Like I'd kind of caught her out and I didn't I actually believed that the car, the keys were locked in the car and I trusted my mum. I had, she had no reason to lie to me about what she was doing. But now I know that she probably did have a reason to tell me mistruths or steer me in a different direction just to keep me at bay. And it's very difficult when you want to dig in deep to those and ask more questions because I don't know that I could have asked any more or that she would have told me anymore because she was pretty cranky at me that I had exposed to Leslie, probably more so than me, that um, she wasn't actually staying at Leslie's that night even though she'd rung me and told me she was. So, yeah, it's it's hard to know how I would have done things differently Um Back then, I think, you know, having an open conversation and I'm I'm probably pride myself on that with my kids that, you know, we talk about the good, the bad and the ugly and, you know, there's no secrets with us. We, we are very open right down to every everything and some people might disagree with that and think that kids aren't privy to those sorts of uh, conversations and, of course, you know, my children range from 16 to 22. So, obviously, what I discuss with my 16-year-old son is probably different to what I discussed with my 22-year-old daughter. But, you know, and in the middle there, I've got a 19-year-old daughter as well. So I just make it so that my children have a very clear understanding of what's happening and we just have an open book. And I think that's probably be my best advice for anybody in a relationship with their parents or their children or their husband is communication is key and being able to be open and honest with those people and not feel judged you know, sit there and have a conversation. And I've, I've really drummed that into my kids. You know, if you've done something wrong, you tell me, you know, there will be less ramification if you tell me the truth and we can work through it than if you say something that's not true. And then I find out later that you've lied or something. So my kids generally are that, that person. They're those humans. They, they are open and happy to sit there and tell me things, the good, the bad and the ugly. And I don't sit there and judge them. We work through it. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I'm exactly the same with my kids and I have people tell me all the time, you give those kids too much information, you are too open with them. 
but I mm. really value that two-way street. Not that I go and offload my problems onto them, but I want them to see me as a vulnerable human and know that you know, they can come to me with their vulnerabilities as well as they continue to grow up. 100%. Think, 100%. Yeah. I think that's what makes it particularly hard to even look back with your mum's case is the fact that anything that may be considered a potential red flag in the lead up to her disappearance also has an explanation. As I Mm. mentioned, it, it made sense that she was selling her house and that she wanted to sell it quickly. But then with the lens and understanding coercive control, I imagine you can look back now and go, well, maybe she sold it so fast because she was being pressured. You know, there might have been more on the line than you were aware of. And it is, it's only with, you know, looking back that we can even look at these things really and understand what may or may not have been happening. Yeah, for sure. And I think, as I said earlier, you know, there was no reason for me to not trust what my mum was telling me. And so when she told me that she was going to downsize and everything had rhyme and reason, she was like, oh, well, you know, I've got all these big pieces of antique furniture and they won't fit in the unit. So and you're going to inherit them one day anyway. So you might as well have them now. That was all the lingo that I was being fed. And so I just rolled with it and went, yep, okay, I I get that. And you want to downsize to a unit because you have a three-bedroom home and a swimming pool that no one uses. Of of course, you'd want to go and live in a smaller house if that's what you choose to do. And I have no problem with that. I'm happy to help you and in any way, shape or form that you, you need help with. And so it is difficult because at the time too, I had no inkling that there was a man involved, absolutely nothing to tell me. I didn't see anything. It wasn't a razor sitting in the bathroom. Like I saw nothing. And I'm an attention to detail kind of person, uh, which people have probably already established. But um, it's, yeah, there was just nothing. And so therefore, she didn't slip up. She didn't say anything. I mean, Joni and I have dug deep into some of these timelines, right? And there's a situation where we know from Bronze evidence, who's one of her sisters, that they met and went to the ballet and they didn't sit together. They had separate seats because they just had a membership and they were cheaper memberships. So they just got whatever seat was available. And that was in Brisbane. And then they went up to her parents' place to the Caloundra at Moffat Beach and it was uh, my grandfather's birthday. And so we've been able to timeline those things and we know that the day that mum went to the ballet with Bron, her sister, she also went in and picked up her passport from the passport office in Brisbane. Now, every other passport she'd ever done before that, she had sent to her home. So this was a point of difference. She had collect stamped on her passport application. So she came to Brisbane and picked it up and remembering it had a name change on it, something that no one knew about. But the fact that she's done that and then that night or that afternoon she goes to a matinee with her sister and then goes up and spends the weekend with her family, her mother and father and that sister, but does not say anything about a name change, a new passport, I went and did this today, nothing came out of her mouth uh, to give us any inkling that something was not quite right. Then we have the phone call that she rang me just before she flew back into the country. You know, she rings me on a payphone, money's dropping out. So the phone, it was distressful for me because she kept talking and then the phone would cut out and then she'd ring me back with more money and then she'd, and, and it was like a, 
there wasn't a gap in the time. She just obviously wasn't putting coins in or something as she was talking to me, but the phone would drop out and then she'd ring me back. And this happened a number of times and to the point where she says to me, okay, well, I've, um, this is the, all the coins I have now, so I'll just let you keep talking until the phone cuts out. And then so I'm telling her about I've just bought my wedding dress literally two days before or the day before and, you know, what was happening in my world and I had my interview with the police coming up and she was excited for me with that. And she literally just sat there silent while I spoke and then the phone cut out and that was the last time I ever spoke to my mum. And, you know, she was telling me, she was getting me to cross-check off things that she had done at school and she wanted me to take a few things back that she'd accidentally put into storage. And this these were big problems for her that she wanted me to fix for her. And I've always, that's always been a worry for me in the whole realm of her going to be missing on her own account because I thought if anyone was going to go overseas back in 1997, you could literally get on the plane and leave and I don't know if people know this for fact, right, but when you leave the country, when you leave Australia, the only documentation that police keep or, sorry, Australia keeps and Home Affairs keeps is an Interpol where you leave and where you get off that plane. So if she got off in South Korea, which we know to be the case because it's on her outgoing passenger card, that's where the, the trail stops. So whether she bounced to Japan or whether she bounced to the UK or Amsterdam, wherever, we don't know that. But it will be in archives. So we will find that information. Joni and I are on a mission to find my mum's steps of where she went from that point in South Korea. And um, the same as when you come back in. So on the way back in, she has a stopover in Hong Kong. So on her incoming passenger card, it says she's coming from Hong Kong back into Brisbane. And that's a big problem in the world of trying to find a missing person because it's like a dead end. There's no follow through with that, except the cards are kept, but they're just not kept under Interpol. And then obviously Interpol destroys everything after seven years anyway. So in my case, they were destroyed a long time ago. And it wasn't really until month's 10th anniversary that I contacted the AFP and said, something's not right here, people. I need some help. The police aren't helping me. That Rebecca Cotts came into the picture and she started helping me. And by which point I was three years after the seven-year cutoff. So I'd like every opportunity to find her and find that relevant information, bank statements, everything, because the police had told me they'd found her and my, her family were telling me to leave it alone. Essentially. And with with the passenger cards, you're certain it's your mum because she has a very distinctive way of writing the word Australia, but you've never been able to get your hands on the manifest either, right? Like the passenger list. Oh, no, I do have the manifest. Yeah, I do have that. you do? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the outgoing and incoming manifest and there is not one other person on either manifest that – is the same person. So Joe Bloggs is not on the outgoing flight and Joe Bloggs is not on the incoming flight. So I always thought that if we had the same person on the outgoing and the incoming, we would have a potential person of interest. And I sort of started that conversation with Gary Sheehan quite a while ago and because I was trying to think of other things they could look at that hadn't been presented to me and that was one of the things. So I do have that now since we've done the inquest because they've actually gone and got that information. So I do have that. It's very interesting. We do have a list and we can. We sort of thought that we'd found the person who potentially was sitting next to mum on the, one of the flights but turns out she was a child 
and was traveling with her sister. And then we were told by another person just doing some research into that was that those lists are not in seat order. They're just as you've actually logged into the system. So it doesn't necessarily mean that person was sitting next to my mum. And then it's a far reach anyway to sit there and go, would you remember sitting next to someone on a plane 27 years ago? And what did they tell you? So that's, you know, a bit far-fetched to think that someone might, someone may, but it's a pretty pretty big um, question mark as to whether they would actually recall that or not. So, yeah, I do have that, and that's been the benefit of doing the inquest as well. There are documents now that I have been privy to. I posted on my group page uh, yesterday uh, uh, showing people the document I started with, which was my first Freedom of Information document that I applied for. And they charge you for these things, right? They're not free. And the document is nine pages, I think, and most of it's redacted. And now I have 13 volumes of evidence and 13 volumes of documents. Um, and that's a lot to retain in your your brain as well and trying to um, – that's why I have moments where I stop and I go, what's that word? I can't think because my brain just gets full. Um of, of lots and same with Joni actually but the two of us are kind of good because we bounce off each other and if I can't remember something she remembers it and we sort of go down that path many many times um, but yeah. It's an enormous amount of mental load it's incredible. Yeah. Where is the case at now as we stand? So as we stand right this second, we've just received the submission reply from Adam Castleton who is the Crown Solicitor for the coroner and he's replied to Mr Blum and his submissions and our reply to Mr Blum's submissions. Uh, New South Wales Police didn't um, do a submission in in response to him and now we're just waiting for confirmation on a date for the coroner to hand down her findings. So um, hopefully that will be soon. I was really hoping it would be this side of Christmas um, so I, just so I can process it and it's, I think I feel I'm worried for myself that there will be a massive release for me when the coroner says that, but I'm, I'm trying to stay strong and hope that, you know, we can, uh, I can keep it together because I think for me, hearing the coroner say anything, um, about my mum and her status and things like that, I take that very seriously. And I, you know, it's to me, it's like a person of authority. And I haven't had that since my grandfather passed away in 2003. So for me to hear her say what she thinks has happened based on all the evidence and where we're going to go from there is massive for me. Um, I know there's lots of people who have said they'd like to be there when it happens. It will be in Sydney, at Lincoln. Um, and I have sort of spoken to them at the courthouse and asked them, you know, is there a flow-on room or something like that, depending on how many people actually want to come. Um, but I think the story has has really resonated with a lot of people. Like, I mean, you know, to lose a mum in, in such a horrible way and all the things that I've had to go through and all the roadblocks and the, me pushing through those roadblocks and then moving to the next stage, um, you know, those people have been on that journey with me now. You know, they've been following along and, you know, um, the, the Facebook page is very active and same with the group. We've had to start a new group because my Facebook page has been blocked for some reason. So I can't post on there um, 
anymore, but uh, we've moved to a group situation and um, the group is going crazy and my husband's just set up a website so that we can post everything there that is legit and people can actually go and go on there and see it if they're interested in following along. So um, it's just part of the ride, which is crazy. It makes so much sense that you are going to have a sense of release and relief because you've been carrying it and, yes, you've got your supporters and you've got people that are, like, helping you literally on the ground and going through things with you and finding all of these details and these leads. But I can imagine that relief in just being able to pass this information to the coroner and say, now it's up to you. Like, you take the wheel. It's It's just, yeah, I can only imagine everything that's going through your mind. You mentioned Mm. the website. Obviously, we will link to the podcast as well, and I cannot encourage our listeners enough to jump on over and listen. I'm sure most of them have heard your podcast, but if they haven't, go back to the first episode, listen to The Lady Vanishes. Where else would you like our listeners to head? Um, Well, The Lady Vanishes is probably a good starting point if they haven't heard of the story before because we go through um, a lot. I would say to people, a lot of people, there are a lot of episodes. I can't even tell you how many there are now. I think maybe 53 episodes and there's conversations in there as well. But don't skip over the conversations because the conversations are where we get raw and we answer questions from the followers and we sort of talk about what we found that wasn't presented in the podcast. So the conversations bit, I feel, um, I listen to them and I sound very angsty in my voice because I'm going through the, the stages and the phases of what I've been told and, you know, um, the, the setbacks and the pushbacks I'm constantly getting told and, you know, um, listening to people say that I'm seeking a scapegoat for this situation and, you know, oh, I believe Sally's mother was found as recently as last month, you know, not okay, not, not good conversations to be having to a person who is uh, living with a missing person. And um, so I do, I do listen to myself and I cringe a little bit, but it, it just gives you the raw uh, impact of what I was going through at that time. I feel like I've changed a lot in those last five years as well. I've become more mellow and I, I can pick and choose my battles, I think, is the thing. Like I sit there and go, you know what? I'm not going to give you that energy. That's not the energy I need to be worrying about today. I'm going to worry about this today. And what's going to be good for my head today? What am I going to do today that will keep me strong and healthy as opposed to sinking me down into the pits of, you know, despair and what have you? And let me tell you, I have had those moments as well, but I pull myself back out. I seemingly have the moment, I pull myself back up and I go, right, I've learned from that. That wasn't good for me. So we're not going to go down that path again. We're going to stick to this path instead. Um, so they can they can follow us at the Lady Vanishes, of course. That's the main drive. We've got the website um, that my husband has seemingly set up for me just recently, um, just so he can put the, the everything on there. So you'll be on there. Your link for your podcast will be on there as well. And um, any news that comes up will always go there um, for people to follow along. And um, I can give you those to put in your show notes if you like later. Um, We have a group called Missing Person Marion Barter on Facebook. Um, There is also a page um, which has all the details dating back from when I started it in February of uh, 2013. Um, But we're just struggling a little bit at the moment with the content in there. But there is a lot of information in there that people can still go back and have a look through if they're interested in finding out more or um, digging deeper into what we've been doing. I'll make sure we have all of that information in our show notes. 
Sally, thank you for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation with me. And I will be thinking of you and keeping everything crossed that you get some news this side of Christmas. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. And thanks for listening and following along too, because it means a lot to me that, um, you know, people care. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. So thank you. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.